A little positivity. Greetings, fellow joymongers. Welcome to another episode of Joyfully You Life with Dr. Katrina Clark. Today, I am so incredibly excited and honored to introduce you to my cousin, Kevin Bruno. In my original podcast taping, I shared how important family is to me and to my extended family. Many of us grew up together more like sisters and brothers than we actually did cousins. We saw each other all the time and family was just a central part of our existence from birth, I guess. So Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. It was so good to see you a couple of weeks ago during my unanticipated, unexpected trip to Texas. <laughs> you as well. We're always looking forward to seeing you whenever you can get here. You know, mom had been admitted to the ER and right. I had thought I was going to delay my trip a couple more weeks and do the Mother's Day thing. But, you know, tomorrow's promise to no one. And so Absolutely. I thought, let me get my hind parts on down to Texas. Absolutely. It had been over a year. And I was so excited that we were able to pull it all together. And yeah. your mom, as usual, was the central central point of contact. And she it was wants, just she's going to be the hostess no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think I, I think that runs in our family a little yeah. bit. We love to host people and make people feel good. And Absolutely. your mom, being our matriarch right now, is mm -hmm. pretty amazing in a lot of ways. And she wears it well. She does. She does. Yeah, I remember when my mom, it hit her when we had the 80th birthday party right before the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. And we were referring to Aunt Betty as our matriarch. And <laughs> mom's like, wait, what? And I think that's challenging because, you know, all of their siblings before, Aunt Ruth, like, um, Aunt Saritha, right. yeah, mm -hmm. Eunice. So that's challenging. But I love that we have that connection and we hold it all together. So what's one of your favorite memories from childhood, Kev? As far as our family is concerned, my favorite memories are always the memories of our get-togethers, the memories of all of our Christmas get-togethers. Because, you know, without get, without get-togethers, there's no holes ball. Right. Uh, there's nobody that's trying to be refined and, 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 and reserved. None of that. You, know, you, may, of that. you may see that in their workplace. You may see that when they're out in public. But when it's family... It's never that. So those are my fondest memories because there was always that feeling of love and happiness and joy in those households, no matter whose house we were at. Right. You know, it didn't matter whose house we had the, the uh, get together. It was always the same thing. So those are my fondest memories. Yeah. So talk a little bit about Fount, a.k.a. Gramps. That man, my grandfather, even now to this day, he is for me the symbol of manhood because he didn't need to be macho. He didn't need to be aggressive or abusive. He didn't need to be loud and obnoxious. He was quiet. He was refined. He was intelligent. He was suave. He was all of that without knowing. Yeah, he, he was, was smooth. Why did yeah. I'm like, God, he, he was so smooth. Because he was just so genuine that yeah. all of that came natural to him. And to see it, to be able to grow up in the middle of it, gave you this feeling of, for me, I was always in awe of my grandfather. Yeah. I had never even, and this isn't saying anything disparaging about my own father, but I had never seen a man who 
exuded self-confidence in the way that our grandfather did. I know. It's just, it was amazing in so many ways, you know, when you think about it, because it is unfortunately not as common as you would like no. it to be. No. But he was all. so comfortable in his skin. And he, he just, was. And he, he made you comfortable around him. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's pure joy. That yeah. every, every memory yeah. of my granddad is just pure, pure yeah. joy. Yeah. Let's jump into what we're talking about today. I want to lend a actual family voice okay. to this idea of criminal justice reform. I've got two sort of passion areas in my life where I try to serve and be of help. One is education reform, and then the other is criminal justice reform. And, you know, I've been a big supporter of the Marshall Project and the Equal Justice Initiative. And I think a part of that, Kevin, comes from a blend of two things, having a grandfather who, because of the color of his skin, would be persecuted just for that and have to endure those kinds of challenges. And then also because you, my cousin, someone who I really looked up to and sort of hero worshipped at a very young age, you know, experienced challenges that led you to be a part of that system. Right. And so you mentioned at 12, you were you know already six feet tall. <laughs> You've always been incredibly good looking. So what was that, what was that experience like, you know, to be that young, that big, and be in a society that, you know, doesn't necessarily value big black men? And you weren't a man by any stretch, but you certainly right. looked like one. What was that experience like? That was definitely a period of my life that shaped the rest of my life. Because not only was I persecuted by whites at the time, I was persecuted by my own people, you know, Black people who saw me as a target, who saw me as a way to bolster their egos and bolster their esteem in other people's eyes. Because here's this big guy, and I can pick on him because nobody else knows. He's a 12-year-old. He right. thinks like a 12-year-old. He functions right. like a 12-year-old. Right. So when I go to him and approach him, he won't fight back like an adult, and it'll make me look good. Oh, so for a lot of yeah, and that was it was that for me that was uh, probably the most devastating time in my life. And I remember when we talk about how society looked at us. Number one, at that time, in the early seventies, racism was still much more prevalent than it is now. And I remember when Riley and I were going to see Uncle Sammy in Pittsburgh, and my mother sent us just Riley and I on buses. And uh, we were in, I want to say New Orleans, getting ready to change buses. And I was 12 years old, so my mother purchased the tickets over the phone. And for a 12-year-old, there's a half-price ticket. So I hadn't had any problem until I got to New Orleans. When I got to New Orleans, we were getting ready to get on the bus, and I handed the bus driver my ticket, an older white gentleman. And he looked at me, and he said, his exact words were, and I'll never forget this, he said, nigga, I don't, I don't know what you told those people at that counter, but you're not getting your black ass on my bus for half price. So I'm standing there with my mouth open. Ryan was already on the bus waiting for me to get out. I'm standing there with my mouth open because I don't know how to, how to respond to this. So Ryan grabbed me and said, come on, let's go. So we went and called my mother and Betty Bruno did, did her Betty Bruno magic. <laughs> <laughs> and we were on the next, next bus for the same price, headed to Pittsburgh. But that experience stuck with me. Yeah. I'm, I'm almost 60 now, and I remember like it was yesterday. Yeah. 
those early memories can definitely shape our experiences. Yeah. So you're, you know, you're a teenager now and you're running with a tougher crowd because you don't want to feel vulnerable. Right. You, you need a exactly. tribe, you know, you need some muscle behind you. Exactly. I remember my girlfriend, Dion, one time we were out with our exes and, you know, this guy was, I guess, doing the thing that guys do and, you know, being all blustery and everything. Mm. And I remember Dion said to him, where are your people? You're in this place acting like this. This is not going to end well for you. People yeah. roll a little deeper than this. Yeah. So you started rolling deeper mm-hmm. uh, with a certain certain crowd. Mm-hmm. And that landed you in prison for yeah. robbery. Right. So talk to me a little bit about that whole experience of getting, I guess, in with that crowd and then the transition into incarceration. I think the biggest thing probably the biggest factor to all of that was the the feeling of vulnerability, always feeling like no matter what happened around every corner, someone was going to take advantage of you. And there were these men, these young men who I saw as men who exuded that confidence, who people didn't mess with, people uh, shied away from. And I gravitated towards those people because I wanted to be like those people. Not necessarily the outlaw part of it, but the feeling of of invincibility for me, you know, okay, you don't mess with those guys, so I'm going to hang with that crowd because you're not going to mess with me. Right. So eventually, I sought out those people and started to hang with those people and started to create a persona for myself, create this person that would do anything, would say anything. Because what happened when I did that was I garnered the praise of these men, these men that I I more or less looked up to. I became the guy who would do anything. Then they looked up to me. They would say, man, look, let's let's do this. No, man, I'll do that. Man, look, get Bruno. Bruno will do it. And here I come. I'm the crash dummy. I am going to do whatever it was. Yeah, because I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be respected. I wanted to be protected. I wanted to be feared. Because at that time, fear was what would keep you safe. Right. So eventually, those were the people, even as I got older, those were the people who I sought out. Because for me, that had become my my sanctuary, my safe place. That persona, being that Bruno, not Kevin. I had to put Kevin on the back burner because Kevin was weak and and kind and, and Kevin wanted to be intelligent. But none of that got you anywhere in our society then. So I had to put Kevin on the back burner and become Bruno. And Bruno was ruthless and callous. And uh, I sought out those groups of people. And eventually that led me to getting with a group of men who had been doing, let me backtrack just a second. It got me in trouble at my household. (laughs) Yeah. Because that Bruno didn't jive well with Joseph Bruno, my father. That persona didn't go over in this house. Right. You had to be Kevin here. And I didn't ever want to be Kevin. So there was conflict between my father and I almost constantly. And I ended up leaving home, running away from home a number of times. And for a period of time, I survived on the streets. I didn't live in the house with my parents. I lived at different people's homes. I lived uh, just to be blatantly transparent. I lived with a prostitute for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, She would get up in the morning and go to work and I would sit around the house and you know do whatever she wanted me to do. But I didn't want to be homeless. You know, I didn't know actually I didn't know that I was homeless, but 
I know I didn't want to be out there on the streets by right, myself. Right. So I started hanging with the group of guys who had started robbing savings and loans. And for me, one day, they all came into this apartment that we were all hanging out in and called me in the back room and pulled out these giant wads of money. I'm like, man, that, I'm thinking to myself, that'll get me off these streets. What are y'all doing? So the guy, Paco, from New York was the leader. And he said, I'm going to show you what we got going on, man. And I remember us going to what, they, what you all would call case, a savings and loan. So we went to the savings and loan. We watched it and found out that there were no security guards and it would be relatively easy for us to go get in and get out. And true to form, Bruno volunteered to be the guy to go in. Nobody else had to go in. Y'all just sitting here and make sure the car's running. I had never performed a robbery before in my life. I got a pistol, a Samsonite bag. I walked into a savings and loan and walked up to the counter and told the lady, handed the guy, no, it was the guy first, handed the guy the bag and told him, put all the money in the bag. And I don't know what I'm doing. So they're putting this money in this bag and I'm telling them to open these drawers that I see. And this guy keeps skipping one drawer. And I, I see this. And I'm saying, no, that drawer. And he skips it again. So I point the pistol at him. I said, I said, open that drawer. So when he pulled the drawer, it had a lock, top on it that it was locked. And he handed it to me. And I looked at it and I was thinking, okay, I don't know what to do with this. So I just took the whole drawer with the bag, ran out into the alley, jumped in the car, and took off. When I got into the back of the car, I laid down in the back seat. And I remember opening the drawer that locked up because it had a just a little lock on it that you could turn and seeing all of this money. And I knew that we had to share the money between us. So while I'm laying in the back seat, I'm a crook against crooks. I'm taking money and stashing it in my pockets and in my boots and all of this. So I can make sure that I've got more. And we ended up with about $45,000 and I was hooked for me. That was a way for me to survive on the streets without having to capitulate and come home and say, okay, I was wrong. I could actually take this money and survive on the streets. And that's what I started doing. I'm young at that time. I think that when, when I pulled the first robbery, I was 18, 17, 18 years old. And I reveled in the notoriety. So when people started hearing that Bruno and, and Paco and Pee Wee are robbing and they're making all of this money, I wanted to be flashy. I wanted people to see me. And I started buying expensive clothes and all of this other stuff and motorcycles and whatever else. And uh, word got out. And when the police started looking for the bank robbers, some of the people who knew that, you know, Bruno and Paco and were robbing, divorced that information. I'm sure they get paid for it. I remember the day that I got arrested, some guys, I was getting ready to move into an apartment. Some guys came over to the apartment where I was, and I was explaining to him I needed to get some furniture because I was getting ready to move into these apartments. And I didn't know, but they had been sent in by robbery division to just make sure that I was there in those apartments. And uh, one of the guys had a, I, I'll never forget this, one of the guys had a hawk that they had caught, this huge hawk in a cage. And I was like, what you going to do with that hawk, man? And he said, uh, Nothing, man. You want to buy it? I said, yeah. I gave him $20 for the hawk in the case, set it on the porch of the apartments. And they left. And I'm thinking I'm going out to check on this hawk. 
because we were in, inside in the apartment getting high doing all this other stuff. And I go outside to check on the hawk. And when I open the door, I look to my left and the guys who supposedly had just left were stretched out on the floor and there were 10 to 15 cars of police officers standing around outside with these guys on the floor. So I stepped back into the apartment and closed the door and I told the guys inside, the police are out there. So now everybody's scrambling because we got marijuana all, all over the table. We got pounds of marijuana that we just buying, just not to sell, just to, to have. Mm-hmm. So we're scrambling. The police come, knock on the door. One of these knuckleheads opens the door. Police kick the door open after he opens it. And uh, I asked for me, and I'm in the back room. And when they turn the corner, I'm in the hallway. And I'll never forget this. And this is one of those times when I knew God was with me. But later, I didn't know it till later. They turn the corner, and there's three police officers, and all of them stick these guns in my face. And I immediately put my hands up. Well, the lead detective, I found out later, Detective King says, put your hands up. So I put my hands up higher. He hollers, I said, put your hands up. And I know that it was God who told me, this man is going to try to kill you. Scream. So I screamed at the top of my lungs, I've got my hands up. Everybody in the apartment, probably at the back of the apartment, could hear me scream, I've got my hands up. And uh, he looked at me for a minute and put the handcuffs on me and took me to prison, took me to jail. A few months later, I was on my way to prison with the aggravated 25-year sentence. Fast forward, I did eight, month, eight years and four months in prison. My prison experience was something totally different. I think I became more hardened at that time when I was in prison because once I was released after doing eight years and four months, I was right back nine months later for the same type of offense. And uh, it would be 20 years after that before I would see the outside of a prison cell. No, I was looking because I wanted to ask you about that, the return mm-hmm. part. But before, there were a couple of points that you made that I wanted to, to pick up on. And one is this idea of you wanted people to be afraid of you. Mm-hmm. And because that would mean people wouldn't mess with you. Right. So you had this energy about yourself that was fear me. Right. And it sounds like a lot of the people who you rolled with had that same vibe. Right. Fear me. Right. So when we try to reconcile the countless senseless murders of Black men Mm -hmm. at the hands of law enforcement, And we rightfully are angry and upset when their backgrounds or, you know, any number of things get raised as justification for why the police had to do what the police did. What do you think about the role that your desire to incite fear? You know, how how do we kind of reconcile that? Because the police say, you know, I feared for my life. Right. And I hear you say that you and your boys were absolutely about, you better be fearful. Right. And one of the reasons for that, and uh, in my talks with men who I talk to now who have left prison, one of the common factors is the fact that I think the most debilitating thing for any man, but especially for a Black man in this existence, is the presence of fear. Always afraid that the police are going to persecute you always afraid that if they stop you, you are not in control. Always afraid that they can do, or they can act with impunity. Just do what they want to with you. 
mm-hmm. and you have no recourse. So for us, for, for so many Black men, our only recourse is to instill fear before we become fearful. Right. As a way of combating our fearfulness, we try to instill fear. And it's not that we actually want you to fear us. What we don't want you to do is persecute us. Right. Take advantage of you. Yeah. And for us, the repellent for you is the fear. For us, it's like, so we, we adopt that same mentality. Okay, well, we're afraid of you, then we need you to be afraid of us. And maybe you will react to us in the same way that we, we react to you. The problem is you've got the guns and we don't. Right. The problem is you've got the power and we don't. Right. So That's a phenomenal perspective. So the other point I wanted to unpack a little bit was this idea about, you know, you're being homeless and you're not wanting to. You know, we, by all intents and purposes, our entire family, you know, Uh our mothers, who Uh are matriarchs, all upper middle class. These were all educated women, very professional. Right. Your mom, nurse anesthetist. They're just a bunch of badass women. Uh So there would be those who would say, how could you be this way? Because we, we have these ideas about the kinds of people who do things like roll with gangs and go to prison. Mm-hmm. So you didn't grow up in the ghetto. You didn't, no. you know, you weren't no. poor. We had, we had good lives. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about how you reconciled your upbringing, your family, you know, this, what outsiders would view as an ideal, you know, upbringing. Right. With ending up as someone who was rolling with gang members, robbing banks, and then later going to prison. Everybody, every household, I have no doubt that every household has some dysfunction. And I was an extremely sensitive child. You were, yeah. I was so, so sensitive. And thank God that I've, I've had the ability to get back to that now. Yes, as an we're going to definitely talk about that. But, yeah. but I was so, so sensitive. And there were some things going on in the household that I reacted to in a negative way as far as just friction in the home. Right. And uh, me being as sensitive as I was, it affected me in a far greater way than it affected anyone else in the house, any of my brothers. And I reacted to it in a different way than anybody else. Because I, I couldn't be, for me, I couldn't be in the midst of that. For me, it was... I would rather be on the streets than mm. than be in the midst of the friction. And that's not to say that there was anything more or any, anything that was that, that you would see as being more of a challenge in our home than any other home. But it was but that was that your home. It, right. Right, it was the way that I could perceive it and the way that I had to figure out a way to be able to digest this and turn it into something that, that was palatable for me. And I couldn't do it. Yeah. So I had to get out. Yeah. My father and I were always at all. So Yeah, I was gonna make that I'm glad you you made that point because there's this idea that people have on the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. And that's just a superficial kind of view. You don't really know what's going on. You don't right. really exactly. know the whole story. And the other thing about environment is it's very unique to each of us right. and how we filter and perceive what's happening around us shapes our response to it. And we're all individuals. And so we're going to have very individual responses. 
and we're going to process things differently and that's going to create different outcomes for different people. So I appreciate your making that point. So you were just about to go into, you were out for nine months and Mm -hmm. for many of us, you know, we kind of found out watching the news and it was devastating. For my mother as well. Yes, it was devastating for the family and we continue to rally, you know, Mm -hmm. around you and your mother was just fiercely relentless when it came to doing everything that she could to make your existence as positive as it could be, no matter what the other circumstances were. And I guess that's just indicative of a true mama bear. But this is interesting, Kev. I was reading some statistics, you know, kind of getting prepared to talk to you. And so in one study, they say 68% of released prisoners are rearrested within three years, mm-hmm. 79% within six years, and 83% within nine years. Mm-hmm. So this idea that prison is rehabilitative is crap, right? Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> I would love to expound on that if you'd like for me to. A little bit. I think it would be helpful a little bit to kind of yeah. just give like a firsthand experience of there's nothing rehabilitative about well, America's criminal justice it's system. It's not designed to rehabilitate you. It's designed to house you. It's designed to dehumanize you. Right. When I got to prison, they were still calling you nigger and boy. There were no black inmates who slept in the cells with white inmates. There were no white inmates who slept in the cells with black inmates. There were no Hispanic inmates that slept in it. You slept and you socialize with your race. And that was perpetuated by the system. Mm-hmm. To a degree now, it's still that way. Let me say this. Uh, TDCJ, Texas Prisons, has made a concentrated effort to make it look as if they're actually concerned about rehabilitation. There are certain things, that certain boxes you have to check. But each and every one of those boxes in and of itself is meaningless unless these men get out and someone is walking with them while they're actually trying to live this out. Right. So Texas prisons doesn't do that. Very few organizations, even the organization that I worked for, didn't do that. I tried to do it. And uh, as a result of that, probably that's why I no longer employed there because I wanted to take it a step further. But no, there's nothing rehabilitative about, I can't speak to other prisons, but I know as far as Texas prisons are concerned, there's nothing rehabilitative about Texas prisons. Yeah. That's not their purpose. Their purpose is to house you, warehouse you. Right. And most men who go to prison leave, I would say 90% of the men who go to prison leave in a worse psychological state than they arrive. So. Yeah, I was reading about that. There, you know, there, there are all kinds of PTSD. You know, uh-huh. when, you have, when you experience a trauma, and I say you being any human being, uh-huh. it impacts you. The body absorbs it. The subtle body, which means the deeper, truer essence of who you are, absorbs Mm -hmm. it. And there have to be outlets for that. There are a number of studies that say this kind of trauma is passed down from generations or through generations. So you actually experience within your own physical essence the traumas of your grandparents and your great-great-grandparents. So you, you pile on the inherited trauma you know, with your own experience of trauma. And you end up with a very kind of complicated psychological profile around trauma and how right. you show up in the world. 
which I think leads us to a really nice part of the conversation. So you rolled up a couple of weeks ago on your motorcycle <laughs> and <laughs> you just had your classic joyful expression. And I remember your mom, you know, as you rode up, you know, she says, there's my son. He's living his best life. And it just really, really warmed my heart. You've been someone who has been incredibly creative. And I think that goes hand in hand with the sensitivity that you've always embodied. So I want to talk about a couple of things there. One, your art. Are you still painting? I am. Not as often as I was. I paint primarily now in pastels. So, okay. Yeah. So what are you, are you working on anything in particular right now? A friend of mine talked to me about creating a piece for her home. I like to do things that have an African feel to them. I love our heritage. You know, I went to Africa a couple of years ago, a yeah. year and a half ago. Yeah. And a couple of the photos that I took there I'm going to turn into a painting for her, for her house. So, Oh, that'll be awesome. One of my yeah. favorite pieces is the one that you did for your mom of granddad. Yeah, that was charcoal. I loved that. I still love that. She still got that hanging in the living room. I so know. I still I love know. that. And yeah. you can feel the energy. You know, I think when people are creative like you, you pour, you said, you know, you, you bled making that one because mm -hmm. you were being so mm -hmm. intricate with the details of that. Yeah, It was almost like a portrait of Granddad. In my recreation of his image, I wanted to be true to who he was in my recreation of it. And no matter what I did, I couldn't get that part of him out of there. But I think just the effort of wanting to do it, the effort of trying to do it came through. So I think you did an amazing job with it. And I do think that you captured a couple of things, the essence of who he was mm -hmm. as a patriarch and such an incredible patriarch. I, I just consider his being my granddad one of the absolute best blessings of my mm -hmm. own physical existence. Absolutely. But you also captured in that painting what, what really comes out whenever you see it is the adoration that you had for him. Absolutely. You know, because I think it's easy to respect your elders or for people to say that and you kind of just give it like, okay, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. my elder. But we adored that man. We did. We adored I think everybody did. Yeah, yeah, he was that dude, right? Yeah, he was my first hero. Yeah. He was my first hero. And that one that, like, I loved the way you talked about it earlier, you know, like not somebody who had to wear a cape and yeah. he just loved. And he, not, he loved hard, he loved out loud, and he made it okay to love and be and loved. I think now, listening to you say that, I think that I recognize now where that part of me came from. Yeah, the, the the loving and wanting to be nurturing and wanting to be caring and wanting everybody around you just to feel good because that's what he did for us. Yeah, he walked in the room and everybody just immediately felt better. You never felt threatened. You never yeah. felt uneasy. You always felt good because he was in the room. Yeah, I love that our birthdays were so close together and we yeah. always, you know. So I felt like, you know, we yeah. were sort of twins in a way because yeah. it would always be, you know. Michelle and dad's birthday. Yeah. And I love yes. that. It was like, I yeah, me and, right. me and Fountain Buds. That's my <laughs> dude right there. All right. So what's bringing you joy these days, Kevin? My photography and my filmmaking. I mean, I love to paint. Don't get me wrong. But I think learning to paint with light and shadows has been my greatest joy. And being able to create film and video that I can take and use as a vehicle to transfer 
my energy and my emotion and my, I love being able to do this. One of, one of the reasons why I do primarily, I do documentary work because I want to be able to tell your story in a way that makes your story come alive for people. I don't want to create just bland imagery. I don't want to create this fairy tale. I want to tell the truth, but I want to tell the truth in a way that's compelling and in a way that people can appreciate it. I've recently talked to a friend of mine whose son was arrested four years ago, never charged with a crime, young black man, and uh, arrested for the murder of another man. All the evidence points towards someone else doing it. None of the evidence points towards this individual being anywhere close to it. But he was, he was in jail for four years, sitting there. He still hasn't been exonerated. And I talked to her when she, when she and I were talking about, so he, he just got home the other day for the first time in four years. And when she and I were talking about it, I said, we got to tell this story. She said, Kevin, I wish you would. Please do. So that's going to be the next, uh, hopefully my next project. I'm going to get his story together and go out and beat the floor, beat the pavement for some funding. And we're going to get his story out there. So, but I love it. That's what brings me joy. It's just opportunity to be able to express myself in those ways. Yeah. Uh, and then my, my parents bring me joy. Being able to serve them right now in a way that I could never have even imagined being able to serve them. It has been a blessing. It continues to be a blessing. The relationship that my father and I now have brings me joy. We never had that. We were never able to sit down and just talk and, and feel easy in each other's presence. And we have that now. And I I how life comes joy. full circle. Yeah. Yeah. There was always a point of contention between he and I. We were always at odds with each other. I think that's a natural. I don't know because I clearly don't know what it feels like to be a man. But I Thank think God. having, <laughs> <laughs> I think having observed like my ex with his son that there's something about young men and and the development of testosterone and the challenging. We see it happen in nature all the time, mm-hmm. and I just think that some fathers and sons go through that in more constructive ways, but I just think it's a unique experience that happens between fathers and sons. Mm-hmm. And I remember Jerome and Eric used to butt heads in the house. And, you know, mm-hmm. Eric was like you, he was six feet tall really early and started feeling himself a little bit, you yeah. know, kind of sashay through the house. And yeah. Jerome just wasn't having it. Yeah, so, you right. know. <laughs> you know, man, you, this is my house. Right. Yeah, you don't get to you don't need to mark your territory. You create your own territory. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I think, you know, some of that just kind of goes with the territory. What, given that, Ken, what would you, what would your advice be to, say, parents who might be struggling with wanting their kids to make different choices or get themselves associated with a different kind of crowd? We know developmentally, by the time you're eight, those experiences that you've had have pretty well shaped your personality. But, you know, as my mom always says to me, and I'm sure your mom says to you, she's always going to be my mom. She's yeah. always going to be the exact same number of years mm-hmm. older than me than she was when I was born. So. <laughs> and you're always going to be her baby. I don't care how um, old you get. Exactly. Exactly. So. so what would you say to people who might be struggling with teenagers who they feel aren't necessarily making choices they would like them to make? That's a difficult one because it has to start earlier than the teenage years. It has to start almost from the womb where you start to develop a relationship and a trust between one another. Your child has to trust you. 
And you have to understand that the natural course is that there's going to be some rebellion from your child to you. One of my favorite, favorite stories in the Bible is about Abram when he's getting ready to sacrifice his son. And we all talk about that story as if, you know, man, Abram, just this giant sacrifice. And it was. But the part that we miss is there was no rebellion from his son because his son had watched him his entire life and watched him in his reverence to God and his service to God and his undying, unwavering devotion to God and God's return to him. So for his son, it was like, I trust you enough to know that whatever you're getting ready to do, you believe that it's in our best interest. And I ride with you because I've watched you. I trust you. Yeah. So it starts way, way before they get to be teenagers. They have to see us live a life that that garners in them a respect and a trust. And if you've gotten to the point to where they haven't seen that, your job becomes harder, but it's still your job. And it's still the job that you can do. It just means you have to put more work in. But the bottom line is, If you want your child to respond to you in ways, in positive ways that will influence their lives in positive ways, you have to develop trust. I love that. Trust is a bedrock for all relationships when you really think about it. Yeah, because it It gets to, I think, how we started the conversation about, you know, this willingness to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. If you learn that it's okay to be vulnerable, Mm -hmm. that you have a safe space someplace in the world, because there are many places that don't feel safe, but you need one place that feels safe. (laughs) And if you can find that, then all feels well. Yeah. The interesting thing for me about that is a lot of times we look outside of ourselves Mm-hmm. for that feeling of safety and security. And as I've gotten older, the thing that I have come to appreciate is that comes from within. Right. It I was just thinking from, that. Yeah, it comes <laughs> from the the knowing right. that you are a divine creation, perfectly created right. to live the life that is immediately and directly apportioned to you to live. Mm-hmm. And when we can lean into that right, yeah. and stop resisting and floundering about like a fish out of water, then all of a sudden, like the sun comes out and the birds are singing, Mm -hmm. even when the storms are rolling, right? You can look at the storm and say, this too shall pass because you have this peace that passes all understanding. And for me, that becomes, I think, the central place and source of my joy. Right. And I think that's where I am now as well. I don't necessarily need the external to feel safe. Because, Um, you know, the problem with that is it runs out, you know, so you got to get, you got to go to the next source. It always changes. Yeah. 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 It's like, all right, that well's dry. We got to go to the next well. I was trying to find something else. (laughs) You're always in between wells. Exactly. That's the part people understand. You're always in between wells. Right. Until you tap into that. Yeah. Yeah, This infinite fountain that exists Uh within, right? Well, this has been a fabulous conversation. Absolutely. And I really appreciate your taking the time. I think we've got family reunion coming up in October if the pandemic cooperates, um, right? I've been needing that so bad. Oh, I my God. Now, really see, bad. those were the best. Like, I remember when Uncle W would tell the family stories. Like, yeah. we would all get together around yeah. the campfire. You know, we have this amazing family history. And that's another part that 
I feel really blessed about is, you know, we are able to trace our lineage back, unlike so many people of African descent in this country. And we have lots of land in Texas along the Brazos River. Mm -hmm. And we used to annually get together there and have our ancestors tell us our family history and our family stories. So I'm excited and hopeful that we'll be able to get back to that. Well, I'm there almost every, at least once a month. I know. I go camp at least once a month. On the and do the ancestors speak to you when you're out there? I'm sure they do. On a deep spiritual level? Yeah, because that's, to be absolutely honest, I now find that to be the place that I go when, I'm, when I feel like I'm stressed. Yeah. I take my tent or I just take my hammock and stretch it between two trees and I can spend the night out there and I don't care. Right. And, when I, and by the time I get back, I'm good. You're good, right? So I've been recharged. Yeah, good. totally yeah. recharged. Battery on full. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> well, it has been good talking to you. You as well. I love you very much. And I, as I do you. I love the place that you're in, and I'm so grateful to see you in this amazing place. Oh, thank you. Thank you so very, very much. I will look forward to seeing you uh, soon. Absolutely. So I want to thank my listeners for tuning in. We've had a really great conversation with one of my favorite people, my cousin, Kevin Bruno. And hopefully you've heard something that has inspired you, given you hope. The thing that his life definitely represents for me is this idea of always holding on to hope and remaining true to who you truly are. The world will definitely try to shape you and mold you and influence you. And if you can find a way to maintain visibility of your own North Star and secure peace within, then joy can come from outside and inside. Absolutely, I agree. Thank you, Kevin. So until next time, continue to be joyfully you, full of joy, fully you. Thanks again for listening. I live.